0: Jesus is hard to understand sometimes and today we're in a passage that has been difficult to understand for many people um for most of the church actually and through church history um this is uh this is one of those passages that it's really important that in my opinion uh that we get right um this is a passage that actually has influenced church history um I mean, really beyond measure. It's impossible for me to measure how important this passage is in the light of the church history. And so as a result, I will be, uh, this is a part one sermon. And I know there will be a part two. I'm not sure if there will be a part three at this point. But this this message is, is, is really crucial, really crucial for our understanding of the life that we have in Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me as we begin? Father, this morning, it's so important that we um, understand this, and even if the uh, people don't don't agree with the preacher, um, on one level, that's fine, because we're all in unity in Christ, Um, and I know that there are many who see this in different ways. However, that being said, Lord, I pray that my word would be your word. I ask, Lord, that you would give us the grace and give me the grace to proclaim the truth, that is in Jesus Christ. So fill up this word. May it be uh, given by your spirit and through your spirit. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So, someone has said that to be great is to be misunderstood. I don't know if you feel that way sometimes. You know? Uh, probably not. Uh, however, if this is true, who could be greater than our dear dear friend Calvin. Yes, that's right, from Calvin and Hobbes. Can you read that? Can you see that up there? It's a picture of plague. Calvin uh, Calvin's de, uh, debilitating disease drink only a dollar, um, only one dollar. That's that's who Calvin is. You know, poor Calvin, so misunderstood. People don't understand what he's doing. Right? Uh, that's that's his. Okay, so so I'm just kind of starting with a little humor today. I don't know if you can read that up there or not. Can you read that? Maybe not, maybe not. Um, Hobb says, uh, how, how's the, the panorama coming? And Calvin says, I'm almost finished. That didn't take too long. That's because I'm a genius, Calvin says. I don't see the, the roadrunner when, when you, uh, uh, weren't you going to put one in? He says, see the cotton balls I, uh, that I glued down? Yeah, the roadrunner just ran out of the scene, leaving those clouds of dust. And then the next one. Had to do this. I just had to do this. Don't know if you can see these things up there. But anyway, uh, this is great. This is perfect. Uh, here's another one. I'm a genius, but I mis- I'm a misunderstood genius, Calvin says. To which Hobbes says, what's misunderstood about you? Nobody thinks I'm a genius. Nobody thinks I'm a genius. So, so misunderstanding, you know, pretty big deal in Calvin's life. Uh, maybe a big deal in your life. Uh, it's too bad that Calvin is so misunderstood in the world. Uh, it's too bad, um, but he's not the only one who, who is uh, misunderstood, not at all. Uh, in fact, the Christian is misunderstood, right? Uh, the Christian life is misunderstood. The world doesn't understand what we go through. They don't understand what it means to be Christian. Most people in the world don't understand it, and you know what they, they, they do all the time? They look to the church to try to figure out what it means to be Christian, and they look to you and they look to me. Uh, Sometimes this is good, sometimes this is not so good. Uh, Someone very famous said this, the word Christianity is already a misunderstanding. In reality, there has been only one Christian and he died on the cross. Sounds kind of good on one level, doesn't it? But you know who said that? I'll tell you who said that. Frederick Nietzsche. I don't know if you know Nietzsche. Oh, he's one of the world's famous atheists, right? Right? He's one of the world's famous... I mean, he, he's, he died long ago. But Nietzsche was one of the world's famous atheists. He was a, a real enemy of the church. And the reason why he uh, is an atheist... You know what the main reason why I think why he was an atheist? He would say he thought it through. But you know what I think it really was? I think he looked at Christians and saw them as being hypocrites. He saw the church, and he saw the church as being a problem. Um, and that happens all the time. That's why he says... Essentially here, he's saying there's only one Christian, and that was the first one, is Jesus himself. Everyone else is a bunch of hypocrites, right? The point here is that everyone's looking at us, right? Everyone sees Jesus through us, whether they like him or not, right? I mean, they, 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 a guy like Nietzsche separates us from Jesus, but many people think of God based upon how they look at the church, certainly in our culture. So if our church is healthy and loving, they begin to think, well, maybe there is something to God. Maybe he has something for me, right? But the church is not healthy and not a loving place. They start to think, well, you know what? Maybe God's really not there. I don't know who God is, but he's probably not in that place and not with those people, right? Uh, this is super important. People are looking at us. They really are. Now, now this is going um, to be an interesting statement a statement to which you may not understand or believe, but I put up here, I said, much of the misunderstanding of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit can be blamed on a misinterpretation of Romans 7. you I'm thinking, what? Well, what are you talking about? I'm telling you, I'm telling you that much of the misunderstanding of who God is, the character of God can be blamed on a misinterpretation of Romans 7. Now, I'm really getting into controversial stuff here because the church is very divided on the interpretation of Romans 7, very divided on it, okay? Uh, not that there isn't union in Christ uh, uh, in the various traditions of the church, but this is, a, this is a huge thing. This is the biggest, the biggest area of controversy in church history. A lot of people think, well, it has a, the biggest conflict in church history, the biggest controversy in church history is predestination. I'm telling you, it begins right here. It begins in Romans 7, even before predestination. Okay. So last week, last week, I gave you the most likely interpretation of the word I in Romans 7 7 through 13. I don't know if you're here. If you weren't here, you missed that. But I told the church that the I is the person of Adam. I don't want to repeat that. I don't want to go through that and so forth. But Paul uses the uh, technique of impersonation. When he comes to uh, verse seven, he starts using the word "I," and what he's doing there is a rhetorical technique where he's like saying, is, "You know, Adam comes into the in, into the uh, passage and starts speaking about himself." That that's what happens. That's to impersonate someone is to become someone else. So uh, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and read this. Uh, just kind of kind of get our minds back into uh, the context here. Get into the context. And and look at, look look at what look at what Paul says. He says, "What then shall we say that the law is sin?" Now I have that highlighted in yellow because it's a it's a critical issue that Paul's dealing with, uh, and we got to think big picture. But nevertheless, that the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for this for the law, I would not have known sin. Now there's where Adam comes in. You can imagine this uh, passage being read. Remember that the church, early churches when they received uh, a a letter, or like we refer to this as the book oftentimes, they would read the entire book, right? They'd receive, they would read all 16 chapters of Romans if they, when they received it. That would be quite a message, wouldn't it? And, and we should tell us something about the nature of the church, especially in the early days, is that they had no problem with making sure they got done in an hour, right? They just didn't because they knew that their faith, their faith was too crucial, too important for the lives that they lived. We don't think that way in, in America. Uh, we should think that way, but we don't think that way. Uh, but anyway, so, so at this point, in the pa- and, and as they read the letter, you, you could just imagine, I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever if at one point the reader would actually kind of stop, one reader would stop, and then another person would come in and start impersonating Adam. could easily be done. But, but oftentimes it would be done with a voice, probably. Uh, so anyway, verse, uh, verse 7 here, uh, what he says, that the law is sin, by no means, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. That's totally Adam. Trust me, that's Adam. We did that last week. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, which is exactly what Adam did. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law. This only could be Adam. But when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul is absolutely uh, set on making sure that the reader understands that he believes that the law is good, because, because he is so bl- blamed so many times in his ministry by other Jews Here's the guy going around preaching that the law's bad. And so Paul is right here trying to say, no, 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 the law is good. I want you to understand, I agree that the law is good. Okay? So uh, really, that's, that's really important. Uh, it is so tempting to repeat last week's sermon, uh, but I'm not going to do that. I want to move on to this week's sermon. But that being said, uh, for you good inductive Bible study students, and some of you are here, right? Because some of you have been in my classes And I taught an inductive Bible study class on the book of Jude not too long ago, about a year ago. And so you good inductive Bible students, I want you to be thinking about this. I'm not going to preach this way today, but I want you to be thinking about this. I want you to be thinking about this this construction. Notice verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Right? Then notice this in verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me, do you notice do you notice the question about law and then the question about death? Law and death. Very important. That's all I'm gonna say right now. For those of you who really want to dig into this passage, I want you to think about that. Law and death. And then read on in the first couple of verses of Romans 8, please. Okay, now that's a message for those who are who are really digging in deep uh, into uh, into the scriptures here. All right. Um, I, I, I want, I, that's something for you to ponder. Today we're moving on to verses 14 through 25. Moving on, okay? Um, very controversial material. Let's read this again. Rod read this. I'm going to read this again for you, so to get your heads in, 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 in it. Get your minds thinking about this, okay? Um, here we go. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. You can highlight that, underline that, put colors on in your Bible, whatever you want to do. Sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the, with the, with the law that, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Okay, so I want to get right to the point here. And it's so important, I have actually put it up here. I've just taken part of my sermon I've written up, and I said I'm putting it right up here so that you can understand, grasp this. And it's so important that you understand this. Okay? Too many people in Christian history, too many people in Christian history, and too many people today have collapsed the book of Romans. And I'm going to tell you this, they have collapsed the entire New Testament. they have collapsed it under an incorrect reading of Romans 7. Now, what do I mean by collapsing? It means that you are, you are so sold on a misunderstanding of Romans 7 that the other words of the New Testament kind of cease to have meaning. Now, I'm not talking about that on every point, where it has to do with victory in Christ. So many have said, well, Romans 7 tells us this, therefore this other thing, this, these other passages have to mean something else. Right? They collapse the book. Okay, um, If Romans 7 is to be read as a description of the Christian life, then two things immediately happen in our minds. Now, One of them I don't have time to go into today. One of them is predestination, doctrine of predestination, a misunderstanding of the doctrine of predestination. Yes, there is predestination, but it is misunderstood largely in, uh, in many Protestant churches. I'll just make it general like that. Okay, there's a certain wing of Protestantism that is bought into this uh, this doctrine of election and predestination in a way that is not what the Bible is teaching. Okay, so that's one thing. Okay, the other thing, which is really what we're talking about today, is um, is look, when we misunderstand Romans seven, we believe that God has not called us to a to a present. I'll just I'll, I have this slide for this to an ongoing present victory. Do you know people like that? Do you know people who think, well, the Christian life is full of full of so many challenges and, and my life is so full of sin that, you know, you know, I know I hear the preacher occasionally using the word victory, but come on. Victory, really? Maybe every now and then, but not that often. Right? Since so besetting in my life. Now, at this point, I have to have someone to debate what I figured that may bring this home a little bit I don't know if you ever listened to John Piper Um, John Piper is a a reformed Baptist uh, preacher Um, many see him as a scholar I'm going to tell you right now he's not a scholar he is not he's a good man he's on our team but I wouldn't go to his school he's not a scholar I don't believe he's a scholar. Uh, Anyway, I don't want to put him down. I really don't. But he's not giving the correct view on Romans 7. Um, I'll tell you that right now. Um, (sighs) Wow. Look at what he says about Romans 7. He says this in a recent article. Actually, this is something he spoke about. When I say that Romans 7:14 through 25 describes Paul's Christian experience, I don't mean his steady state experience. I mean that this sort of defeat happens to Paul. For example, when he says, "If I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it but sin that dwells within me." Romans 7:16 7, through 17. He's referring to an occasion, an occasion, not the totality of life. Um, Well, that sounds good, except that it's wrong. It's just wrong, okay? And I have to give him credit. You see, because I think he's certainly sincere. I think absolutely sincere. I think he's on our team. He's an evangelical. He's a good man. Loves Christ. Really, really uh, part of the team in a sense. But he's wrong here. I would ask Mr. Piper. I would say, uh, I'd say Mr. Piper, um, so tell me about this defeat. Is it 10% of the time that you're defeated as a Christian? Is it 20% that you're defeated as a Christian? Tell me how often, how much you're defeated as a Christian. What do you think? Uh, Mr. Piper, tell me where it is in the New Testament where you see Paul's defeated Christian experience. You know what he'd say? He'd say, I see it right here. I'd say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Show me somewhere else. Have you ever read the New Testament? Have you ever read Paul? Have you read the book of Acts? You see Paul defeated, struggling with sin in the book of Acts? You see Paul struggling with sin all the time? Do you, do you see that in Paul? I don't think so. I, I, don't think, I don't think I see that. In fact, okay, I think Paul says somewhere else in the New Testament uh, something like this. Doesn't he say this in the book of Galatians? He says about himself, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you've ever really stopped and thought about what Paul's experiences were, you read the book of Acts, think about all the things that he went through. Let me tell you something. There's nobody more surrendered to Jesus Christ than Paul. Paul did not live a defeated, sin-filled life. When he came to Christ, he, he preached the gospel he lived sacrificially for the gospel. You don't see him. You don't see him just saying, "Oh no, I wish I hadn't sinned." You know, you don't see that kind of stuff about Paul. Now, I will say, some of you are thinking, "Well, well, what about that section in Philippians?" You know, uh, and so forth. Remember that section in Philippians, right? Okay. Uh, if you read before uh, three seventeen, you see that he talks about he hasn't reached, reached. You know, the end. In other words, he hasn't really become. Completely holy. That's different than having a defeated life as a Christian, right? In fact, Paul says in Philippians three seventeen. Notice what he says, brothers: Join in imitating me. You know, I don't think he could say that if he struggled with the sinf- with a sinful life. I don't think he could do it. I don't think he'd say that at all. He'd say, brothers, you know, I got problems. You've got problems. Uh, imitate Jesus. We should be fine, right? Imitate Jesus. But Paul's so bold to say, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is very assured, very assured about his life being a life of victory in Christ. I mean, very assured about it. And yet people take Romans 7 and they say, wow, here's this great example of Paul's defeat. Really? Now, I hope I'm not being too hard on John Piper, because I keep saying, you know, he's a, he's a good man, and he's I think he and I would be great friends. But we come from very different theological traditions here, and this and the essential um, place where we differ is Romans seven. Okay, that's the essential one. Okay, John Piper and his tradition doesn't seem to understand that when Paul says in Romans seven fourteen that I am, I am of the flesh, sold under sin, that he means that he is sold under sin. You think about that for a moment. That's a pretty radical statement. If that's the Christian experience, then we got a problem, right? I mean a big problem. Paul earlier says, don't let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Then Paul says here, I'm sold under sin. You think that's the same person? You think that's the Christian experience? I'm telling you, it is not the Christian experience, okay? Now, for John Piper and for those in his tradition, he would say, well, you know, um, some of the time we're sold under sin. The problem is that that's not what it says. It doesn't say some of the time you're sold under sin. It doesn't ever say that it just happens to him occasionally. No, it says that he's sold under sin. But I want to help you understand this, so let's look at the Greek. Okay, take a look at the Greek. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, now in the Greek, all right, you'll see up there, it says, Odomangar, otionamos, pneumatikos esten, that means for we know that the law is spiritual, ego de sarkikos emi, I am of the sarkish, sarks, which means flesh, I am of sarks, I am of the flesh. And then notice this. Boy, those letters came out wrong, they're supposed to be not rose, but pies. Oh well, it's pepaminos, uh, upo, a martian which means essentially that it's a selling of, it's a, but it's in the perfect middle. In other words, this is saying that he himself has sold himself at some time in the past, and it continues. That's what the perfect does in the Greek. In the Greek, the perfect tense, it means that something happened in the past, and then it continues on into the present. Okay, So at some time in the past, this is what it's saying. Paul sold himself under sin, If this is Paul, God sold himself under sin, and then that sin and that being sold under sin continues throughout his life up until the present time. So sin has the real power in his life. That's what that's talking about because that's a perfect middle participle. Could that be Paul? That is not Paul. That is not the Christian life. That is the life of all those who are in Adam, in the shadow of Adam. Because when we are in the shadow of Adam, as Ernst Kazeman said, I think it's a good way of expressing it, When we are in the shadow of Adam, we are under the power of sin. That was Adam's problem. That was the problem in Israel. That was a problem throughout the Old Testament, right? And then Jesus breaks in, and there's a radically new thing that happens. The world is not the same when Jesus breaks in. When Jesus comes to your life and my life, guess what happens? We get born again of the Spirit. We get born again of the Spirit, now, I'm not saying that we don't struggle with sin, but I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is that Romans 7 14 through 25 is not addressing that. It's not addressing that. It's addressing all those who are in Adam and are in the shadow of Adam. And guess who those people are? The people who are not believers. They're people who have not been born again. Um, I can go on with this, okay? In fact, I'm going to, to see this being that important, okay? Um, Okay, I've already said that. Here's what John Piper continues in this, this, this article. He says, or when he says, I see in my members. He's moving down. See, I'm going to spend a lot more time in Romans 7:14 to 25. Nevertheless, jumping down to this, this uh, verse near the end of this passage, Piper comments on this. He says, or when he says, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Romans 7:23." He does not mean that he lives in the steady state captivity. He means captivity happens to him. So most of the time, I think what Piper's saying is that most of the time I don't live there. I, still, I live in a victorious, I have some, sort of, some level of victory, not a lot, but some level of victory in my life as a Christian. But then there's this time when the sin kind of happens to me and I'm kind of stuck in it, right? It happens to me. If it has its own force, it happens to me. Okay? And some of you are probably thinking right now, wow, you know, I struggle with sin. Maybe that really really makes sense. Maybe that really is a description of my life. Maybe that's a description of the Christian life. I'll tell you, that's not what Paul's trying to communicate. You may experience some of this stuff. That doesn't mean that Paul intended to say it that way. It doesn't mean that Paul wanted you to understand the Christian life that way. Just because you struggle with sin doesn't mean that Paul wants you to see the Christian life as a life of struggle with sin. That's not the Christian life, actually. In fact, John says in his first letter that the one who's born of God, guess what he says? Does not sin. You know, when you do sin, you know what that means? It means you're not being Christian. I Notice I didn't say being a Christian. It's not being Christian when you're in in sin. Listen, friends, we are called to live a life that makes no sense to the world. A guy like Frederick Nietzsche can never understand us because we are called to live a life of holiness, a life of great victory. You see? I know there's lots of problems. I know there's lots of difficulties out there, but we're not called to live a life of defeat. We're called to live in the victory of Jesus Christ. Sin doesn't just happen to us. You see? Um, let's, we're going to take a look at the Greek here again. Okay? Look at verse 23 that, 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 that John Piper talks about. Look at this. But I see in my members another law, waging war. That's pretty strong language, isn't it? Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, I know you don't read Greek and so forth, but notice that first word up there. Okay, that highlighted in yellow. Atistras. I have a tough time with this one. Tuomenon, right? It's a present middle participle that means to wage war, to make war. You know what happens in the Greek when you have a present participle? Participles are like verbs or verbal nouns. You know what happens? It means that it continues on. It's not like it wage war against me once there, and then another time here, and then maybe every now and then there. No, no. What Paul is saying is that he sees in his members, and it's not Paul. He's talking about those who are in the shadow of Adam. Those in the shadow of Adam experience a continual constant ever-present war against themselves you see here's the here's the thing everyone in this world really really does want a connection with god everyone wants that and even the atheists want a connection with god they, they, they know in their souls they've got to have this connection because they're empty without it, but they, they don't believe in God or they're agnostic. They think, well, maybe I don't know if God exists. And so they have this kind of this way of looking at life and they go, well, I really want this, but I can't have it. Everyone has a certain measure of grace that God has given them, and that grace means that everyone in their minds at least wants to be with God. That's where it begins, Right? So when we preach the gospel, some people respond and come to Jesus Christ because God has given them grace to respond to the gospel. God's given everyone a measure of grace. But for some reason, some resist. Nevertheless, this is an excellent description of the life before the Christian life, the pre-Christian life, the life in the shadow of Adam. There's a war that goes on and it's ever present, always going on. Okay, I hope that, you're, that you don't live your, you know, see your Christian life that way. It's like every day I wake up, and you know, I wake up, my life really stinks. It's awful because I wake up in the morning and I don't want to praise God. Uh, you know, I just want to do whatever I want to do, and I hate myself for it. Is that your Christian life? That's that man's Christian life, because that's not the Christian life. That's not the Christian life. Look at this. He says, the law of my mind, middle of verse 23, and then he says, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There's a sin power that's going on in his members. Making me captive. Guess what we have there for in the Greek word? Aksmalatizonti, present, active, participle. That means that that captivity didn't happen just yesterday, but it also happened today. It's happening now. It's an ongoing captivity. It's so, so Piper has to be absolutely wrong. It doesn't just happen to him because that person right there is happening to him all the time. All the time. Not just every now and then. That's the life of the person who doesn't know Jesus Christ. And the reason why I get so emotional about this is because teaching Romans 7 as the Christian life has destroyed the church Historically. It's destroyed the church. Because people give up and they say, well, you know, a handful of sin. You know, I can't really help that. I mean, look at Romans 7, by the way. So I live a life of sin. It's all, you know, I'm good sometimes, not good the other times, but I'm never going to really have any full victory. I'm never really going to get final victory over this in this life. So it's it's okay that I'm kind of a jerk. Right? It's okay that I it's okay that I, you know, swear at my neighbor. It, it, it's okay that I, you know, it's okay that I come home, you know, drunk and abuse my children. It's okay that I don't have a good marriage because you know what? In the end, I'm going to be forgiven anyway. This is the way some people in church history and presently in the church throughout the world think because they use Romans seven. They say they, well, they justify their lives by it. Paul has no patience for it. John had no patience for it. Jesus has no patience for it. You know what Jesus expects of you and me? He expects us to repent, to ask for forgiveness, and to be filled with His Holy Spirit. Even the book of Acts refers to the Holy Spirit in one part as saying the Spirit of Jesus. It's, you know, it's really true. Jesus expects our lives to be victorious. That doesn't mean that the world's not going to come and hit us. It doesn't mean that we're not going to get hit on one cheek and then have to turn the other. It doesn't mean that we're not, not going to lose our lives. We may lose our lives. We may be martyred. But guess what, guess what martyrdom is? It's victory in Jesus Christ. What I'm trying to tell you is that stop making excuses about your sin because you know what? Paul talked about that in Romans 7. I think it would break his heart. And I know Jesus wouldn't put up with it. Well, um, maybe this is one of those days where maybe some of us need to repent. You know, I'm not preaching on this material specifically for that. I just My, my whole goal in this material at this point this is only just... I'm going to preach at least one more sermon. Probably Good chance two more sermons on this material. Uh, I want us to get our minds right. I know that Jesus wants us to get our minds right about this because we've made too many excuses. Uh, you know, I mean, it doesn't really matter that much if I get to church. know, it's not that big a deal. Well, okay, I can understand that occasionally, I suppose. I let Jesus talk to you about that. Well, you know, I'm not really learning that much. You know, I'm not really growing in Christ. But you know, and I kind of struggle with, you know, with sin. Okay, I'll let you talk to Jesus about that one. Okay. See, I don't think Jesus has any patience with some with some of our attitudes. You know, Uh, I know Jesus is loving, but Jesus has a bride. You know, the book of Revelation talks about the bride of Christ. Who do you think Jesus wants to be married to? You think, say, oh, well, a little dirty here, a little dirty there. Nah, I'm kind of doing my own thing. That's who Jesus wants us to be married to? Or does Jesus want to be married to someone who wholeheartedly gives his or her life to him? It says, thy will be done. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is a kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now we'll say one more thing. something will have to be said about willful sin and unwitting sin. Because we do carry unwitting sin, but even when we pray to the Lord to forgive us our trespasses, the emphasis there is upon our willful sin. Paul has a place for unwitting sin. The New Testament has a place for unwitting sin, sin that you're not even aware of. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about when we set our will against God, There's no place for that at all in the Christian life. We have been crucified with Jesus Christ. It's not we who live, but he who lives. Amen.